Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're going on a little tour. Wherever you're at, whether you're thousands of miles away from New York or just stuck in your Madison Avenue office, you're all invited to walk with me today through the oldest portion of Central Park. Not to marvel at the beautiful trees, ancient rocks or flowers, or the dizzying array of birds, but to look at the architecture, the sculptures, and the fountains. And along this journey, I'll meet up with two incredible guest stars today. Sarah Cedar Miller from the Central Park Conservancy. And Vox is famous for a quote that is, nature first, second and third, architecture after a while. And Dr. Emma Guest-Consales of the Guides Association of New York City. When I think of the park, I often think of it in threes. So there are three kinds of landscape, three kinds of ways of moving around the park, monumental, rustic, and pastoral landscapes. So follow along in your mind. Pull up a map, or if you're so lucky, just head on over to the park and follow along on foot. This is a story of castles, tiled arcades, cast iron masterpieces, and even the world's most famous writer, immortalized in bronze. The Bowery Boys episode 415, The Early Years of Central Park. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And with Tom away from this show, you and I will be headed up to Central Park, the 840-acre rectangular park in the heart of Manhattan. But we're not visiting all of the park today, but rather a section between 72nd and 80th Streets, centered around a picturesque body of water known simply as the lake. Surrounding the lake are some of the park's most treasured destinations, and I would safely say it might be the most romantic place in all of New York City. Some of you were probably even married here. Now, last year, I released a special show, episode 385, about the early life of Frederick Law Olmsted, who, with architect Calvert Vox, created the original design for Central Park. So this show today is sort of a sequel to that one. But to summarize, in the spring of 1858, Olmsted and Vox won a design competition held by the city to create badly needed green space in a metropolis that was quickly growing north up the island of Manhattan. Their winning design was called the Greensward Plan. Greensward being a late middle-aged term for land teeming with green grass. 
an oasis of thousands of trees planted upon a cultivated landscape expressing a romantic connection between man and nature. Although the entire park is man-made, created by tens of thousands of laborers over 15 years, it was meant to feel like a romanticized rural escape, a charming sylvan fantasia of winding paths, hilly retreats, and tranquil waterways. By December of 1858, only months after Olmsted and Vox won the competition, the first small portion of the park was open to the public, and that was the lake. And being December, this portion of the park was open for public ice skating. From the New York Daily Herald on December 27th, quote, As early as 7 o'clock, there was a good number of persons at the pond, and from that hour, there was a constant increase of numbers till the shade of evening began to render further amusement dangerous. By 9 o'clock, several hundred youths were on the pond at once. Everything was thoroughly democratized. Master Richard and William from Fifth Avenue in their furs, and plain Dick and Bill from avenues nearer the rivers, with bunting flying from joints and middle seams, were all mingled in joyful unity, forgetting the distinction of home in their enjoyment of a common patrimony, free air and free water. It's interesting that from the very beginning, people are noticing the relative democracy behind the idea of a public park, a place where Richard and William, in their furs, can hang out with less advantaged kids. In 1850s New York, there were very few shared spaces between classes, and fewer still where children could mingle. Central Park was destined to become a place for all people, to be enjoyed by all walks of life. But in its early years, the park drew mostly upper and middle class visitors, those with access to carriage travel. The working class in overcrowded lower Manhattan had no leisure time, and there was no easy or affordable public transportation to get people up here. And so in these early years, Central Park evolved in a surprising way. Subtle modifications to the Olmsted and Vox vision. According to author Jill Wacker, quote, The upper class, with its emphasis on cultural enlightenment and greater refinement of manners, continued to advocate the redefinition of Central Park as a sort of theater of memory, studded with monuments, statuary, and cultural institutions. Unquote. Although the menagerie of animals, which would form the basis of the Central Park Zoo, was already assembling by the early 1860s, it would be another couple of decades before the park would become what we might call child-friendly, with playgrounds, sports venues, and carousels. Funny, then, that the places that we'll be going to today, these very earliest creations of Central Park, are popular with everyone today. Not only have these places been made famous in television and movies, but their renovations by the Central Park Conservancy has restored them to their original mid-19th century luster. Think of it this way. You're not just meeting your friends in the park when you come here. You're taking a trip back in time, or stepping into a fairy tale, or glimpsing a bit of untrammeled nature, so magnificently cultivated that it seems like a dream in the middle of one of the biggest cities in the world. 
Now, instead of telling the rest of the story chronologically here, I want to tell it as it fits together physically in the park and from my experience. I arrived at the West 72nd Street entrance via the C train, stopping, of course, to take in the Gothic majesty of the Dakota Apartments. Now, you can enter the park here via Terrace Drive, and you'll be immediately presented with several different pathways and lots of people selling bottled water on this rather hot afternoon. I ventured into Strawberry Fields, created in honor of John Lennon, who was murdered in front of the Dakota in 1980. Every year around his birthday, the imagined mosaic is festooned with flowers, but on pretty much any other time of the year, you'll find lots of tourists, one or two musicians, and a vendor or two selling souvenirs graced with peace signs. Now, strolling through the fields, maybe with a Beatles song stuck in your head, you eventually will reconnect with Terrace Drive, again at the statue of Daniel Webster, the great statesman from New Hampshire. So I meandered south from this point, passing along the edge of Sheep Meadow, which, yes, was once the home of sheep, whose grazing happened to maintain the lawn. I passed the meadow and hung a left at a statue called Indian Hunter, dedicated in the year 1869. And at last, I got to my destination, the circular entrance to what was known in those days as the promenade, but today we know better as the mall. Very few outdoor spots in New York feel as naturally sacred as the Central Park Mall, a broad walkway lined with rustic benches and surrounded by American elm trees that create this alluring canopy overhead. When people describe Central Park as the lungs of the city, for some reason it's here where I feel it personally. There are certainly larger, wider spaces in the park, but here there's such an openness and so much greenery above that it's where I'm prone to actually taking big, deep breaths. The mall runs approximately from 66th Street to 72nd Street, although we are so far from the actual streets of the city here that it feels a little vulgar to put it in place. Here is a spot broken from the city grid, your view protected from seeing any skyscrapers peeking into the park and from seeing any passing helicopters or airplanes in the sky. Initially, Central Park was geared towards those who owned carriages. People who owned or could afford to hire carriages rode freely through this area, away from the congestion of the city, where such elegance and transportation was obscured by the city's other sights and smells. But not here at the Promenade. It was originally designed for carriage traffic, the wealthy riding up and down the wide path, passengers twirling their parasols, greeting passing friends and other carriages, and just generally people watching. 
Later on, the southern end was redesigned for carriages to just discharge passengers, and the mall became a strolling path. As public transportation brought more people to the park, the mall became a less elite activity. This meant a further mingling of different types. Richard and William, with their furs, would now rub shoulders with newsies, servants, and children from tenement quarters. All of them, of course, would have passed by one of the most important statues in Central Park, which stands right here at the entrance of the mall today, a statue of William Shakespeare. This is, of course, the original Shakespeare in the park. And he's important because he's the very first statue added to the park that was not part of the original Greensward plan. This magnificent statue by John Quincy Adams Ward has a rather dark origin story. It was conceived as a celebration of the Bard's 300th birthday and was partially funded from the proceeds of a historic moment of New York theater. November 24th, 1864, a performance of Julius Caesar at the Winter Garden Theater by the Booth brothers, Edwin Booth, Junius Brutus Booth Jr., and John Wilkes Booth, less than five months before John would assassinate President Abraham Lincoln. Despite this dark side note, the statue was cast in bronze in 1870 and finally unveiled in the spring of 1872 with Edwin Booth in attendance to read a poem which, according to the New York Times, quote, was listened to in death-like silence. The popular actor was escorted to the rostrum amid the most tremendous cheers and waving of handkerchiefs. A reporter from the New York Times took note of the scene just a few days later, quote, Seats from that opening ceremony were still arrayed in front of Shakespeare, and passers-by gave their opinions. The workmen criticized Shakespeare's bent brows. The fair sex of the same class had a lower standard of criticism. They thought the mustache handsome, but did not like the round, bald head. The general verdict was, upon the whole, one of unqualified pleasure. Walking northward along the mall, I passed by people from a variety of different places, tourists speaking different languages, and the occasional New Yorker on his phone walking a little bit more briskly than everybody else. Along the path were souvenir sellers, artists, printmakers, even a guy with a booth selling instructions for how to roll a blunt. That certainly was not in the Greensward plan. And even a photographer who offered to take vintage Polaroids of your friends. That's Polaroids in a sepia tone. Over the decades, this pathway, the mall, has gained several more statues which look back at us from the fenced-in shaded elm groves. The great likenesses of male writers Robert Burns, Sir Walter Scott, and the very often forgotten Fitz Green Halleck are all here. This area is sometimes called the Literary Walk, although we may need a different name after the most recent addition. The Women's Rights Pioneers Monument, featuring Sojourner Truth, Susan B. Anthony, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a monument which was installed here in 2020. Now, around the longitude of 70th Street, 
the walk widens into an open clearing known as the concert ground. On one end, graced with the bust of Ludwig von Beethoven, and on the other, the spot where Central Park visitors may have first experienced music in the park. In the 1860s, a small wooden band shell sat here for concerts, which would attract thousands of people. In 1905, arts patron Elkin Nomberg began funding symphonic concerts here. This old bandstand proved inadequate, and in 1923, 100 years ago this year, he funded a replacement, today called the Nomberg Bandshell, in a neoclassical style that offsets it from pretty much everything else in the park. Concert within the new Bandshell began on September 29, 1923, with a concert by a 60-piece orchestra with 10,000 people in attendance. Ending the evening's festivities was a new piece written by Edwin Franco Goldman, named for this very spot, a piece called On the Mall. This piece was dedicated to Elkin Nomberg, who died the following year at age 90. The Nomberg concerts continue to be the world's oldest free outdoor classical music concert series, Imagine taking in Vivaldi, Bach, or Corelli here under Olmsted and Vox's canopy of trees. But maybe another time for me, because I have somebody meeting me up ahead. Sarah Cedar Miller, historian emerita of the Central Park Conservancy, to share the history of the Bethesda Fountain. We'll meet her right after this. Hi there. A quick note to let you know that we'd love to have you join our expert tour guides in the streets of New York on one of our Bowery Boys walks. Our licensed New York City tour guides lead small groups on walks that we've developed especially for our Bowery Boys listeners. Tours of Gilded Age mansions, Jane Jacobs versus Robert Moses, Greenwich Village, Historic Harlem, and so much more. Head to BoweryBoysWalks.com to join the fun. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. 
The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We've arrived now at one of the most recognizable areas of Central Park. You've seen it in Annie Hall, Enchanted, John Wick 2, The Hunger. Calvert Vox may not have ever seen a film or TV show, but he created a place that was irresistible to anybody who wanted to embody the romance of New York City. This place is Bethesda Terrace, with spectacular balustrades and piers by Jacob Ray Mould, who served as Vox's assistant and would himself become one of the city's most famed architects. You're going to hear Mould's name a few more times in this show. The eccentric British architect is as much a hero to the park as the creators themselves. Two stairways plunge down to a lower level toward the real star of our show here, Bethesda Fountain, which was introduced to New York 150 years ago this year. But the best way to approach the fountain is not down the side staircases, but actually down a central staircase, taking you to a very magical space, the arcade. If you have to get stuck somewhere in Central Park during a rainstorm, make sure it's here at the arcade, where the chamber's acoustics amplify the falling waters. But of course, it's a destination during all seasons, thanks to the ornate and caustic tiling, which decorates the ceiling today. The renovation of which was completed by the Central Park Conservancy in 2007. You emerge out of the arcade through seven archways, bringing you to Bethesda Fountain, a majestic fountain featuring two massive basins and topped with a wing sculpture known as the Angel of the Waters designed by Ebba Stebbins, the first woman to ever receive a public art commission in New York City. And it was here that I met up with Sarah Cedar Miller, historian emerita of the Central Park Conservancy. Now more on the Conservancy a bit later. As for Miller, she has an extraordinary new book out called Before Central Park, looking at what lay here before the city conceived of a public park. So, of course, that's where we began our discussion. All right, so we are sitting here in front of Bethesda Fountain. Can you tell me what was here prior? What inhabited this land? The land was a farm. 
Hmm. And it was the farm of James Amory. James Amory was a whip maker. There was a terrible yellow fever epidemic. And so James Amory bought land way, way far uptown and owned by the city of New York. Mm -hmm. And he brought his whip manufactory here, as well as his wife and like six or seven children. And he kept buying everybody's land. So really, like, we're on his old property. We are. We are. (laughs) But the original design, sculptural works and monuments, like, were not part of the plan. And yet perceptions sort of changed in the city and very quickly in fact and by the 1880s it seemed like the park was kind of brimming with all different kinds of architectural treasures so what had changed in just that little generation so Olmsted and Vox were planning a rural and pastoral retreat far away literally and figuratively from the urban landscape Mm -hmm. from the city And so sculpture and monuments were part of a cityscape, Mm -hmm. and they didn't want that. They allowed one monument, one fountain in the park, and that wound up being Bethesda Fountain. But in the Greensward plan, their original design, there were actually a much bigger fountain that they said would be more or less like the Trevi Fountain Mm -hmm. in Rome, Mm -hmm. filled with sculpture. But then they switched it around, and it wound up being Bethesda Terrace, which they originally called the Italian Terrace, Mm. because in Italy, there are villas with surrounding landscapes that are not unlike the Mm -hmm. villa architecture that Vox created. Yeah, can can we describe what the terrace is like? Okay, well, I'd like to start a little further south, Mm -hmm. because the terrace was part of a sequence that really starts at the mall. Mm -hmm. So you have this quarter mile LA of American Elms and they're like the procession down to the terrace. Mm -hmm. So you are under these beautiful LA of Elms and then all of a sudden, surprisingly, you get to this elaborate sculptural area. Then there's a staircase. So it's kind of egging you to move further and further and explore. And so you go down the staircase, and all of a sudden you're in the dark in this jewel box, sort of colorful, exotic room filled with uh, these gorgeous tiles on the ceiling, originally also on the floor. And mm -hmm. then through these arches, burst open into the plaza and in the center, the Bethesda Fountain, originally called Angel of the Waters. I mean, it's interesting because it's like a curated experience, right? It grows from one thing to the next. In a way, like how they had designed kind of the natural beauty of Central Park, that it would also have these sorts of features. But this is actually architectural, man-made features that are doing the same type of thing. Exactly. And, And Vox is famous for a quote that is, uh, nature first, second, and third architecture after a while. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes sense when yeah. you walk through the park, actually. They didn't want you hit with man-made things. I mean, mm-hmm. the entire park, of course, is man-made, but they wanted you to experience nature the minute you cross that wall. Mm-hmm. And then, after a while, you could have what Vox considered his masterpiece. How did Vox see the terrace working as an overall component of the park. How did he see people interacting here versus other 
areas of the park? Well, they considered the mall to be the main walkway and Bethesda the resting place once you got there. Mm -hmm. So they wanted it to be filled with art and color, but they wanted it to be the gregarious part of the park. And the rest of the park, you, you kind of strolled through it in a peaceful, solitary manner. Mm -hmm. So this was where you came to be see and be seen, <laughs> to sure. look at all the other people there, sit on the edge of the fountain, and watch the world go by. It was like every other area is like where you stroll through. This was the area where you stopped, yes. <laughs> more or less. And, and <laughs> the, there was even a theory, John Ruskin, who... Calvert Fox and Frederick Law Olmsted very much adhere to his theor art theories, said that you only decorate richly a place where you sit and rest. If you compare the whole area to a cathedral, and many people did, the mall was the nave of the cathedral, then you get to the transept, which is where the choir would be today, the bandshell originally the bandstand, and then all of the terraces, the apse, with the main fountain being the high altar. But in the 19th century, they would call the walks like a, the mall mm -hmm. a cathedral walk. They used the term. Did people use the park in the same way that they use today? Perhaps that seems like a silly question, but, you know, was it used in a similar way? Were there musicians? Were there, like, anyone selling souvenirs, anything like that going on? No commercial activity okay. whatsoever. However, there were restaurant little carts. Mm. The casino, which was a restaurant designed by Calvert Fox, uh, now Rumsey Playfield, where a summer stage is. Mm -hmm. People could go up there to get uh, refreshment. But also, the terrace was, you know, almost exactly the way it was meant to be. I mean, that's amazing, right? Yeah, to think of something so enduring. Yeah, it's kind of the park's living room. <laughs> Just pull up a couch. <laughs> um, let's actually talk about Emma Stebbins. It just It's a, such a fascinating story. In a way, it's almost kind of hard to believe that, that the city would have hired her. So I want to know a little bit more about her, how she got involved in this project. Sure. Emma was uh, born to a wealthy banking family, the Stebbinses. Her father, John Stebbins, uh, was president, whatever, of the North River Bank, mm -hmm. and he became an early Central Park Commissioner. Oh, okay. And there, there is the answer right there. <laughs> right, uh, so a little nepo nepo baby yeah, situation exactly. going on, but that's okay. There was no design competition, and uh, Henry Stebbins, you know, he got his sister to get that commission, and she was the first woman to get a yeah. sculptural commission in New York City. What is the design based on? The theme of the fountain, Calvert Fox said, would be love. Oh. So he didn't say God. Mm -hmm. He said love. And did not translate it in any way or give a suggestion of what he meant. And so Emma, when she was given the commission had gone through, first of all, a fountain is mainly about water, mm -hmm. and the Croton water was up at the reservoir that's now the Great Lawn in the park. Uh -huh. And so um, the park was about water, a repository for the water system, yeah. and that meant a lot to Emma because she was alive when uh, the cholera epidemic came yeah. to New York in both 1832 and in 18. 49, mm -hmm. and she lost her brother to the cholera epidemic. Mm -hmm. So 
Emma dedicated the fountain to the angel in the Bible who comes down to the pools of Bethesda, that's in Jerusalem, natural healing pools like Saratoga, for mm-hmm. example. And um, in the Bible, whoever touches the waters is healed. And so Emma dedicated the fountain to the biblical angel, that's why it's called Bethesda Fountain, yeah. to um, the healing waters of the Croton River that healed the people of New York City. I mean, that just makes it even more profound when you think of that cathedral-like design, right? Exactly. That, that has, like, it has holy water, mm-hmm. almost, <laughs> That's so, sort of. so beautiful. Yeah. Um, so how has the terrace and the fountain fared over the decades, right? So um, it seems like the upkeep of such an intricate sculpture and design work would be actually very challenging. It is very challenging. Mm-hmm. And the time before the Conservancy in the 60s and 70s, there was tremendous vandalism. Mm-hmm. And so people knocked the birds' heads off and did a lot of you know, vandalism. And so the Central Park Conservancy and the city of New York restored it and it was opened in 1987. It took about five years to actually restore it and we are still restoring it as well as the fountain. Yeah. And um, it's ongoing. We have um, molds for the owl, for the bird's heads. We have bronze conservationists who really work on the fountain every year. Mm-hmm. But we're basically, on that level, art restorers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you just released an extraordinary, and I think a surprising, book on the history of Central Park called Before Central Park which is really a New York City history book in disguise, to be quite honest, because oh. you hit all the bullet points of all the, the major New York history events. So, you know, and you did such extensive research in this book. It's extraordinary. What was the motivation for writing about Central Park from this angle? Well, for years, I've given tours of the park. Mm-hmm. And as I would start, I'd always say, does anyone have any questions before we start? And invariably, the hands would go up and, and the question always would be, so what was this before it was a park? And we knew a little bit. We certainly have a blockhouse from the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. And by the 1990s, we knew a little bit about Seneca Village. Yes. We knew about the Kingsbridge Road that went through McGowan's Pass. But that's about it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, I'm about to retire. Didn't happen. And, uh, (laughs) well, one day the park still needs you, I think. So, Uh, well, I need it too. It's mutual. It took eight years of me doing the research, Mm -hmm. some of it on the internet, but then finally I couldn't even work full time because all the archives in New York are closed Mm, uh, except for Monday to Friday, nine to five. So when was I going to do this research? So I now work part time for the Conservancy, but I got to the archives and New York City has the best archives, the best repository. Mm -hmm. And so it was a thrill. Every day was a discovery. (laughs) Every day was a thrill. And um, And it felt like you were discovering things that people hadn't seen in centuries almost, right? I touched touched little, undid little ribbons on (sighs) rolled up scrolls. It was a historian's (laughs) dream come true. Maps that no one had looked at, 
letters that people had written that were faded. I mean, it was just, it's magnificent. And I think you could tell that in the research. It feels like uh, you're uncovering things alongside you, like we're peering over your shoulder because it's just, it seems so undiscovered. Thank you, because it really was my intention to talk about the process of doing history Mm -hmm. as much as what I discovered. We'll continue through this historic stroll through Central Park after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. I bid Sarah adieu, but I didn't leave the site of the fountain yet. I couldn't help but look out at the lake from this spot. It was a beautiful day, perfect weather, and there were several people in rowboats upon the water, just having the time of their lives. Looking down, I could even see a bale of turtles poking their noses up out of the lake. This was a moment that I don't often feel when I'm in New York City, blissfully disoriented and not a car or a laptop in sight. I feel like I should talk about all of the brides now. Central Park has traditionally been a wedding destination, and during the spring and summer, you will routinely see a batch of bridesmaids wandering through a grove or a pair of happy newlyweds being followed around by a photographer. And Bethesda Fountain is one of the most popular spots for weddings. In 2019, in fact, the TV show Say Yes to the Dress married off 52 couples all at once in front of Emma Stebbins' angel here. From here, it was a little choose-your-own-adventure. So over to the right in the distance, I saw the site from where these boats came from, the Loeb Boathouse. I, however, did not turn right to the boathouse in my journey here, but instead I'm following the perimeter of the lake westward. Now walking along the path around the lake, I took a little detour up to Cherry Hill to check out another spectacular fountain. This one designed by Jacob Raymold, a former fountain actually meant for thirsty carriage horses. 
Today, you'll actually see pedicabs parked around here, maybe festooned in beautiful flowers as part of the park's many wedding ceremonies. And you may also, as I did at least three times in like the span of 10 minutes, hear a familiar song coming from one of these pedicabs. Mold Fountain very, very vaguely looks a bit like the fountain from the TV show Friends, which we all know is a documentary about how people really lived in the Big Apple in the 1990s. Anyway, that scene was really filmed in Los Angeles, of course, but that hasn't stopped people from enacting their own Ross and Rachel moments here. Anyway, I headed back down the hill and headed right up to the shore of the lake, finally taking in this whole body of water, trying to imagine a bunch of kids ice skating on it over 150 years ago. There are some beautiful architectural touches along the banks in the distance, most notably the Ladies' Pavilion, a cast iron structure built in 1871 and designed, once again, by Jacob Ray Mould. But the thing that always catches my eye, and it's a feature that was certainly not dreamt up by Calvert Vox, is actually an apartment building, the San Remo, which sits on Central Park West its two towers peering down into the park like the ghosts of Richard and William in their furs, casting their alluring reflection into the lake. Tall buildings have stood over the lake actually since the mid-1880s with the construction of the Dakota Apartments on 72nd Street. For some reason, every time I'm here, I'm reminded of the book Time and Again by Jack Finney and the passage where the main character Simon peers out of an apartment window at the Dakota, where he experienced some literal time traveling. Quote, I stood looking down onto the pale curves and jumbled shadows that were the paths and greenery of Central Park. Almost directly ahead, the moon shone on the surface of the lake, just as it must have, I thought, on another such night when the building I stood in was new. On the curved roads of the park, Widely spaced street lamps burned, each with a nimbus of late-at-night mist, and it seemed to me that from here they couldn't look very different, if at all, from the way they had looked long ago. Simon goes through some very 1960-ish methods of traveling back in time, but you don't have to, because fortunately, thanks to the work of the Central Park Conservancy, so much of the park's most classic architecture has been brought back to its original beauty. And nowhere is that more true than our next stop over the lake, via the Bow Bridge, which is, to me, the very centerpiece of romance in New York. A 60-foot bridge, which I described as being kind of elfin. You know, picture Kate Blanchett as Galadriel and Lord of the Rings marching along its wooden walkway. Now to learn a bit more about this bridge and the other bridges of Central Park, I marched over the bridge and headed over to a charming little niche called Turtle Cove. And it's there that I met my friend, Dr. Emma Guest Gonzalez, licensed New York City tour guide, current president of the Guides Association of New York City, and a tour ambassador at One World Observatory. She's also a Barry Boys Walks tour guide. 
She starts by describing where we are doing the interview. Well, right now we're in a wonderful little cove, I guess you'd call it, a little niche, like you said, um, sitting on a beautiful rustic bench, <laughs> uh, looking at Bow Bridge, looking across the lake, and we can just see a little bit of Bethesda Terrace. And a black-crowned night heron is flying over the water right now. Um, <laughs> we're actually in the ramble. This is the start of the ramble coming mm -hmm. from Bow Bridge, and I come here and bird a lot. So if oh. I suddenly stop and say, oh, look at that, that's a bird. Well, I mean, while we've been sitting here, I've seen, look, there's bumblebees. I saw some turtles, mm -hmm. some squirrels. I feel a little bit like Snow White yeah. here, to be honest. <laughs> but, but we're here to talk about this big, beautiful piece of architecture yes. that we're right next to, Bow Bridge itself. Could you describe it for our listeners and who designed it? All right, well, so Bow Bridge, it's literally called Bow Bridge because it looks like a long, graceful archer's bow. It's about 60 feet long. It was built during the early phases of construction Central Park, and it connects the area around Bethesda Terrace and what we call Cherry Hill into the Ramble. Um, it's made of cast iron. Construction started in 1859, 1860, and it was completed by 1862. Now, it was designed by Calvert Vox, along with the help of Jacob Ray Mould. And it was cast by the foundry, Janes Fowler, Kirtland and & Company, and they were based in the Bronx. And actually, when they were casting this, when they got this job, they also got the job to do the dome of the Capitol building in D.C. So this bridge was being worked on at the same time or near the same time as the dome? Yeah, well, that's when they got the commission. They, wow. got, a, they got the commission when they were working on this. So um, afterwards, then they built the dome, which is later. But it was kind of neat because they got this prestigious commission for Central Park and then got the Capitol Dome. Can you actually, just back up here, can you describe what cast iron is and how this bridge might have been made? Um, was it, you know, manufactured in pieces, assembled here? Yeah. So, um, ca so cast iron architecture really takes off in New York City in the mid-19th century. Okay, James Bogardus uh, started using cast iron for buildings, for building facades and for building construction. And then it started to be using for, um, for other things, for other materials. I mean, it's a, it's a material that's been around since the 18th century. They're actually mm -hmm. using it in England. Bow Bridge is the second cast iron bridge in the United States. Wow. Yes, the first one is on the Dunlap's Creek Bridge in Brownsville, Pennsylvania. It's very utilitarian. Um, Bow Bridge is just beautiful. I mean, that's what is so appealing, but it's just the aesthetics of it. And you can get, they got that gorgeous line because of the cast iron itself. So it would have been designed, um, drawn very carefully by Vox and Mold. And then the designs were brought to the foundry where molds were made. And the cast iron molds were carved usually out of wood. Mm -hmm. They're pressed into damp sand and leaving that impression and then the iron, the melted iron would be poured into that. And then the pieces would have been, you know, refined and chased and sort of polished up a bit um, at the foundry, but then brought here and assembled and then the final work of assembling and bringing it together and all the refined details would have been completed on site, like a big mm -hmm. metal jigsaw puzzle then brought into the park. This was you know, near the construction of the of whole park back yes. when there was a very different type of philosophy that there yes. were not going to be a lot of man-made yes. things here. And yet this was an mm -hmm. early component, mm -hmm. even, even then. Well, Vox did not want 
lots of structures in the park. And Bethesda Terrace is sort of the exception mm-hmm. to it. But everything else, they wanted to be very na- natural, very organic, so you can move through the park and you're not disturbed by man-made things. Mm-hmm. The thing was, the parks commissioner, one of the parks commissioners, um, Robert Dillon, along with August Belmont, and Belmont would ring a bell for people to think of the Belmont yeah. Stakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he founded the Belmont Stakes. They were equestrians, and they wanted to ride around the park. And so the park design had to be modified to include bridle paths. Mm. And so when I think of the park, I often think of it in threes. So there are three kinds of landscape, three kinds of ways of moving around the park. So the three landscapes, you've got monumental, rustic, and pastoral landscapes. And then for moving around the park, you have the walks for pedestrians, you Mm -hmm. have the drives for carriages, and you have the rides for people on their horses riding on the bridle paths. So adding the bridle paths, you had to create bridges over the bridle paths, and you had to create bridges and arches to get around the park, to get around this so people could walk through it and they would not be disturbed by carriage traffic or by people riding their horses. And so bridges were added. That's one important thing to remember as you interact with the park today, that it is people walking around. Today they have bikes, but then they would have had carriages, and then they would have been riding horses. Yes. That's interesting. Riding horses. So the bridle paths, you can still see them. A lot of people jog on them because it's a softer surface. And when I first moved to New York City, oh gosh, over 30 years ago, there were still stables near Central Park, and people would ride their horses in the stables. So the bridges over the bridle path, the, those were made of cast iron. And Bow Bridge is significant because it's the only only cast iron bridge in Central Park that does not go over a bridle path. Mm. And so what they want to have here, Dylan actually envisioned a suspension bridge. They want to have a little bitty suspension bridge and the, you know, Fox and and Mold and and Olmsted were just, you know, this is not going to do that. We're not going to have a mm-hmm. suspension bridge in the yeah. middle of the park. So, so <laughs> Might be little, weird, but yeah, you never know. But they could have done it. But. They could have done it. But what we have instead is Bow Bridge, which is just so incredibly graceful, so incredibly beautiful. And in, though it is man-made, it, you come across it in such an easy, graceful kind of way. And the bridge itself is easy and graceful, taking you from one type of landscape into another. It transports mm-hmm. you from that pastoral into the rustic of the ramble. Can you discuss the diversity in architectural styles with these bridges and how that works within the park? So you've got bridges made of rough-hewn stone, whether it's brownstone or nice or gray wacker or different kinds of materials. And you've got the rustic bridges. They're made of wood. And a lot of them have been redone over the decades. And they've used designs, um, using the designs that we still have from Vox and Mold. And then the cast iron bridges, which can be very, very elaborate. I mean, cast iron lends itself to Mm -hmm. delicate, elaborate detail. And actually, the period in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, really sort of the heyday, of cast iron architecture when it's so, so fancy. And so you get those kind of beautiful, fancy bridges in Central Park. So you can go just from here, from Bow Bridge itself, as you walk into the Ramble, you'll see these rustic kinds of of structures. But then if you go into the more pastoral parts of it, you see the stone ones and the beautiful mm-hmm. different contrasting colors of stones, really this wonderful high Victorian Gothic throughout Central Park. And by the way, because there's so many of them and the park is so big, I, I feel like every time I'm in the park, I discover a new one somehow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You sort of stumble across them. And the thing is, I find when I'm walking with, say, the Bowery Boys Walks, I do my Central Park tour, just 
exploring by myself, you come across these moments and you're like, oh, look at that beautiful structure. Look at the landscape. And I think to myself, Vox and Olmsted actually never saw that. And we are mm-hmm. seeing this sort of final fruits of their labors. We're seeing it come together in a way that they really only dreamt of and they <laughs> planned it and it was such extraordinary in their planning and in their design was that it, it works and so in 2023 we see this beautiful beautiful landscape and those architectural elements just sort of fit into it in such an organic and wonderful way here at Bow Bridge, I think, has a special reputation, even compared to other bridges. I imagine that over the decades here, there have been so many marriage proposals, wedding photos, special occasions here planned on or around the bridge. What is it that makes this, in a very romantic park already, that makes this one of the most romantic spots in the city? I think just the way it fits into the landscape and the way as I saying before you you come across it and suddenly you've got this beautiful graceful line i mean it's painted a lovely soft creamy color which is very typical actually of cast iron architecture so it's just a gorgeous gorgeous setup and even coming here for the interview there was a woman who'd set up her tripod and was filming herself walking across the bridge because it's so beautiful before you got here over there in that little niche over there Mm -hmm. there was a woman who had set up she was an influencer i guess of some kind set up this very elaborate station for her bulldog oh she's the one i saw on the bridge (laughs) okay so she finished it here then and now she was on the bridge as i was crossing over she set it up with her bulldog yeah she was posing her bulldog (laughs) on the bridge it's the most romantic setting for a bulldog ever ever it really is all right emma thank you very much for joining me you're uh, so welcome lovely one probably one of the most loveliest spots i've ever recorded a podcast i must say it's nice when you said let's meet in central park i'm like perfect (laughs) i'll never say no to meeting in central park all right thank you thank you greg I said farewell to Emma and started my journey into the ramble, perhaps the most mysterious and even most misunderstood portion of Central Park. It is the very opposite of Manhattan, a meandering wooded area with no seeming rhyme or reason to its pathways. So fantastic in its creation that when photographer Robert A. McCabe published his book of photography focusing on the ramble in 2011, He included a map which makes the place look a bit like Middle Earth, not to make another Lord of the Rings comparison here. But this is really the essence of Olmsted and Vox's rustic vision. Quote, there can be no other place than the ramble for the perfect realization of the wild garden, unquote. Rarely does one make the same journey to the ramble twice. Along the way, you might stumble into places like the bonfire rock the Indian cave, or the humming tombstone, only to never find them again, even if you look a dozen times more. I traipsed along aimlessly down these winding paths in much the same way a writer for the New York Times did in the summer of 1860, less than two years after the lake opened to a bunch of kids ice skating. His observations in the Times were titled, Ramblings in the Ramble, the most pleasant spot in New York. Quote, there are paths enough in the interior of the lovely ramble to enable one to lose himself a dozen times over. And for a little while, it is pleasant enough to find oneself entangled in a labyrinth where flowers, cool running water, and singing birds 
meet him at every step. Now, I should say that during the 1980s and 90s, the Ramble was a popular meeting spot for gay men, although that has mostly become a thing of the past. The Ramble has always been a popular spot for bird watchers, and I would even say, though, I've never manned a pair of binoculars to check them out myself, that this must be the very best place to see a whole diverse number of birds. You might even see Flocko, the Eurasian eagle owl, which escaped Central Park Zoo in February of this year and now permanently lives here, eating rats and other urban bounties. Right at that moment when I thought that actually I am lost, I heard a little bit of classical music wafting to the north of me. I followed the sound and came upon a staircase and finally to the final destination in our tour today. The Pinnacle, Vista Rock, the park's second highest spot and the most fantastical landmark of all, Belvedere Castle. Of all the architectural styles featured in Central Park, Belvedere Castle may be the most unique because its strange medieval appearance, which looks as though it's rising out of the ancient schist which serves as its bedrock, is purposefully ornamental. It's supposed to look slightly out of place, a dream vision from the era of King Arthur. Back in 1858, when the lake was first opened to those ice skaters, a fire tower served as a beacon here, letting New Yorkers know when the ice was hardened enough to skate upon. But Fox and Mold wanted a dramatic feature upon this high point which overlooked the park, and so they designed a folly. Follies were a staple of Victorian-era gardens, meant to evoke a certain lightness. But this castle was not without a serious purpose. Back in the 1860s, meteorological observations were first made from the rooftop of another Central Park building, the Arsenal, which is near the zoo today. But in 1919, that role was passed over to Belvedere Castle, its roof flattened out to accommodate wind equipment. For decades, the castle became the spot where New York weather was studied and reported upon, and to this day, equipment is still there measuring wind changes. Audiences at the Delacorte Theater, the home of Shakespeare in the Park, can look past the heads of the onstage performers and marvel at the strange, impressive castle in the distance, rising over Turtle Pond atop Vista Rock. So my big takeaway from this little mini-tour of the oldest section of Central Park is that pretty much none of this would be here in the absolutely captivating state that it's in without the support of New Yorkers. In particular, the Central Park Conservancy, which has been a steward of the park since 1980. Now, for more information on the Central Park Conservancy and how you can become a member or donate to protect the park, head to their website, centralparknyc.org. You can also find downloadable maps on their site and a list of their own walking tours should my rambling and a podcast here not adequately suffice. A big thanks to my two guests today. Sarah Cedar Miller's new book, Before Central Park, is so beautiful and so incredibly researched. She really describes a whole world which existed before the creation of the park. 
for instance, not just on the story of Seneca Village, the landmark free black settlement from the early 19th century, but many, many other secrets which lie below the soil. It even tells the story of what was there before Seneca Village. That book is Before Central Park, published by Columbia University Press. Our second guest, Dr. Emma Guest Gonzalez, operates several tours for Bowery Boys Walks, including one on Ladies Mile, Gilded Age Mansions of Fifth Avenue, and also one on the architecture of Central Park. Head to BoweryBoysWalks.com for more information. And for those who support the Bowery Boys podcast on Patreon.com, you'll get to hear more of my conversation with Emma, that conversation by the turtles, our little Snow White niche. The next episode of Side Streets is called How to Be a Tour Guide, and I'll ask her that very question. This is some great insider info, considering she's the president of the Guides Association of New York City. You can hear that show at patreon.com slash Boys. Portions of the show today were edited by Kieran Gannon, so thank you very much for listening. Coming up next, while Tom is still away, a special two-part show about the history of a neighborhood that you have wanted us to talk about for many, many years. So it's a good deep dive into that neighborhood, and it's a show that will be filled with very special guests. So stay tuned. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.